All right, here we go. We're reading. It's really late. It's really Saturday, Friday night. It's really Saturday morning, but I forgot I had to do my reading for Friday, so I'm going to do it late, but I'm putting it in. I have to start really doing these in the daytime. Um, as a matter of fact, I have to put this on my list. See, the problem is my sleep cycle is off and I'm up late and I'm up all night and then I wake up late. I'm trying to break the cycle, but I just can't. When I wake up in the morning to break it, I end up falling asleep in the middle of the day. I hit a wall, but I got to break it. Tomorrow, I got to break it. This is crazy. Okay, set the world on fire. Keisha, Keisha and Blaine. And I'm reading about um, Celia Jane Allen. And this section is Building a Movement in Mississippi. Make sure all my volumes are up. Because I turn my volumes down. Not, not to um, bother my neighbors. Okay, volumes up. Okay. During the late 1930s, when Celia Jane Allen ventured out into the state to begin organizing rural blacks, white mob violence had become commonplace in Mississippi. Though there appears to be fewer lynchings in Washington County, where Reverend Green resided. Then in other parts of the state. White vigilantes were active in every region of the state and black residents could not escape this sobering fact. An estimated 12.7% of those who were lynched in the state from 1889 to 1935 were accused of rape. However, records of the period only confirmed what journalist Ida B. Wells had long acknowledged Whites used the threat of rape as a means of terrorizing black Americans in order to keep them in their place. Though white vigilantes generally targeted black men, women were also victims of white mob violence. Between 1880 and 1930, at least 130 black women were lynched in southern region in the southern region. In the state of Mississippi, roughly 18 black women were victims of mob violence during this period. Significantly, one of the most infamous lynchings of the period took place in Duck Hill, Montgomery County in 1937. In April of that year, a mob of white men seized Roosevelt Towns and Robert McDaniels, two African-Americans who had been accused of murdering a local white merchant. After mob leaders hung Towns and Daniels to a tree, Hundreds of local whites watched on as they used gasoline blowtorches to burn the men alive. The Duck Hill lynching might have gone unnoticed, as many other acts of racial violence in Mississippi during this period. Were it not for the fact that someone in the crowd chose to take photographs, images of the gruesome scene later circulated across the nation as Congress debated the passage of a federal 
anti-lynching bill, excuse me. Despite the public outcry, no one was ever arrested for the murders. These incidents combined with a string of highly publicized black lynchings helped the state gain its reputation as the land of the tree and the home of the great. I still have relatives in Mississippi and they just kind of lived there. They loved this. They loved their towns. Um, but I guess it's just like I like New York City. I was born and raised here. But I don't know. And I, could, I could point out racist stuff in Mississippi. I mean, in, in New York. And one more thing in this paragraph that really shows how black life is. So no one was arrested for the crime. But the crime was so gruesome, it forced Congress to pass a bill or try to pass a bill or it was used. So it was gruesome. We all acknowledge it was gruesome, but no one's going to be held accountable for the gruesome brutalization of these black men's bodies. And that's that's black life. And then if a law like that passes, people say it's progress. What progress? <laughs> no one's held accountable for the brutalization of our bodies which means it'll happen again. Back to the reading. Despite the clear danger associated with organizing rural Mississippi during this period, black activists of various political persuasions attempted to galvanize black men and women in the state. Civil rights organizations and women's clubs, including the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, NAACP, and the National Association of Colored Women, NAACP, CW, I never heard of that organization, maintained an active presence in the state, providing a platform for black residents to challenge white supremacy and agitate for social and political rights. These groups, which generally appealed to black middle class and elite activists, promoted racial uplift politics, publicly decried the extreme educational disparities in the state and lobby for improved educational opportunities for black Mississippians. During the depression, many black sharecroppers in the state turned to Southern Tenant Farmers Union, STFU, I've heard of them, an interracial organization to challenge the discriminatory politics of the New Deal programs. We talked about that last video. During this same period, members of the Communist Party began to mobilize black Mississippians articulating a radical black internationalist and anti-capitalist political vision. The party, however, was unable to attract a significant amount, I mean, a significant following in the state as a result of limited resources. In 1936, the combined party membership for Mississippi and two other states, Alabama and Georgia, was 425, representing a significant decrease from two years prior when the party boosted I'm sorry, boasted 1,000 members in the city of Birmingham alone. The exact figures are murky, but the Communist Party yielded far less success in organizing blacks in Mississippi during the 1930s than it did in other southern states. Additionally, the party's influence began to wane considerably in the South during the 1930s. At the very same moment, that PME organizers began to target the, the region. As a result, the Communist Party posed little competition to the PME. 
which also targeted the working class despite different ideological commitments, methods, and goals. Against this backdrop, Allen showed up at Reverend Green's house unexpectedly asking for a place to stay. Born in Mississippi in 1875, Green was a widower who resided on a farm he rented with his aunt and several other relatives. A sharecropper by day, Green was also a preacher at a local church and may have had ties to various other churches in the region. As a preacher, Green would likely have many local connections and his endorsement of the organization and its platform would certainly make Allen's work a bit easier. While it is plausible that someone, perhaps a black churchgoer, <clears throat> who read about the PME's popular immigration campaign in Chicago, suggested that Allen stay with Green. The preacher had never heard Allen, had never heard of Allen or the PME prior to the activist's rival pointing out the limited opportunities available to Southern Blacks and insisting that immigration to Liberia offered the most viable solution, Allen convinced Green to become a PME member and also help her establish a series of local chapters. Although Green later shrewdly told FBI officials that Allen never made him aware of the organization's stance on Black immigration, his writings confirm his full knowledge of the PME's aims and his conscious decision to join the movement. Green's endorsement of the PME marked a turning point in Allen's political activities in the area. His involvement certainly strengthened Allen's ability to garner support for her cause. As a minister, he had been residing in the area for quite some time. Green occupied a place of privilege in the black community. Unlike Allen, he was fairly new to the community. Green was likely already well-connected and as a spiritual leader, he wielded some amount of influence and respect. Green's support provided Allen with access to a public meeting space where she could address local residents. Largely shut out of the formal political process during this period, black churches like black-owned businesses and other institutions provided a significant space for black Southerners to be excuse me, plan and disseminate ideas. These churches provided a crucial, a crucial spaces for African-Americans during the Jim Crow era to challenge discrimination and white supremacy. While Green provided Allen with access to a physical meeting place, the preacher's support also provided a buffer of protection from those who might have questioned a woman's ability to autonomously lead. Concerns over the proper roles and responsibilities for women often dominated discussions among black churchmen and black nationalists who were more often than not advocating, advocated for a strict gender hierarchy of leadership. While men recognized women as the backbone, they were generally less willing to accept women in positions of visible leadership with authority over both men and women. This isn't, I don't know why, this is insane. I was once part of a group where men would go to meet and talk, black men, and they somehow this, this group got a nice spot downtown Brooklyn. 
Um, and I went with my wife and another woman brought her son. And while we were there, you know, cause a friend invited us and actually he was a friend of my wife. They grew up together, went to school and I met him and we started talking, became friends. And he told my wife and the woman, well, it was for men only. And I think me and my wife went because we just wanted to go to the, We were looking for different organizations trying to do something, trying to make some kind of contribution. And when we went, he told us that it was only for men. And we wanted, he wanted to give men a space where they could say what they really wanted to say. And they couldn't do that if women were around. I just thought that was silly. I said, well, I think men should be able to say what they want anyway. Why, why do we have to keep secrets? Why do we have to? We're supposed to be men, right? Supposedly this manly men thing, but we can't speak freely if a woman's in the room. That's why the whole black men being a man got to be a man thing was always weird to me. We can, because it's a tough thing, but then we have to have spaces away from women where we could just be quote unquote men. But aren't we ourselves all the time? That's what I am. I, I don't know. I'm myself all the time. I don't care who's there. And if I speak something and it makes a person mad, it makes them mad. I mean, I don't know. Then I can explain what I mean to try to make sure they understand it. And if they understand what I'm saying and they're mad, then they're just mad. I, I don't know. I don't get it. But I say all that to say this whole thing about, I guess they call it male chauvinism, but this hierarchy um, of gender is always been weird to me. But then I grew up in a house full of women with no father, never knew him, never met him. So maybe that's why I have that view. Maybe that's why. Let me just read one more paragraph and then we can move on. Significantly, the PME did not maintain a strict gender hierarchy, thereby providing a space for women to articulate proto-feminist views. Unlike women in the UNIA during the 1920s, women in the PME could be found serving in a variety of visible leadership roles from national organizer to members of the executive board. This is not to suggest that the organization maintained gender egalitarianism or that Gordon herself promoted gender equality. To the contrary, Gordon maintained a masculinist vision of black liberation. And while she remained at the forefront of black nationalist politics, she still desired to establish a black nation led by strong black men. See, there you go. There it is. Along these lines, her views were strikingly similar to UNIA women during the 1920s who sought to expand opportunities for women's leadership, yet also reinforce traditional roles and expectations. And um, we'll pick up on Sunday from there. But it's, it's a weird thing. Um, this whole thing about... Uh, Gender roles and all this other stuff. I, I don't know. Men and women are enslaved in different ways. I can acknowledge that. 
I can acknowledge as far as America is concerned, black men are on the bottom and women on the top. But why do our organizations have to have a hierarchy? And why do the men have to flip? And maybe it's a self-esteem thing. The women know that they're above us in America's eyes, so they flip the men. They flip the men over to not just try to give us a little more self-esteem boost. Um, but it's just like this whole thing where they used to say, well, the men, men are gods and all these other things like that. All that kind of stuff to me, a self-esteem boost. Again, I never needed it because I always felt like I was a human being. Not no better than anyone else. Not any worse than anyone else. Just for being. And all my conditions where I came up short were always tied to some kind of social wall or barrier or social oppression or brutality that was done to me and my family and my community. So I, I never needed those self-esteem boosts. Woman got a good idea. Let's go with it. What do you need me to do? I've been in spots where women ran things and I've had women bosses and took direction. And if we're in an organization run by women, what do you need me to do? You need me to fix something. You need me to speak. You need me to put the chairs away, whatever the case may be. I remember working in the uh, media center in a, in a high school in South Carolina. I used to substitute different places. I would get long-term subbing. And I worked in this media center and there was this old black woman in there. And nobody got along with this woman. She was very strict, very stern, wanted everything her way. But she got along with me. I just did what she told me to do. And I recognize women like that. That fuss, 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 fuss. And and, and eventually I did what she said. I did what she said. I did what she said. And that, and she loved me. She, she just cruelly loved me. Like, and then everybody would tease me. Oh, you her favorite. You her favorite. You know you her favorite. But I've never had a problem with that. But again, I grew up in a house full of women. So maybe that's why. But I had friends that were boys and we grew up, I grew up like every other boy. But there was never really men. I mean, my little sister's father was kind of there for a period. Um, after him, my mother didn't really date like that, as far as I know. So I mean, really was a lot of men in the house. My uncle, but he was like an alcoholic. So, And I was a grown man by then. So he met, he was way below my um, standard of what men should be because he was just smoking and drinking himself to death and though I understand why that happens during his time I don't know because he came about when the community was still intact but I don't know what pain he was going through I don't know he never really shared that much um, but I don't know. I just never, never had problems. Listen, if you want to support the podcast or you want to support um, me in any way, you hit the links, give directly or become a sponsor. Until next time, take care of yourselves and please be safe.